Welcome to Creep Time with Silas Dean. Today we are looking at three of the most chilling disappearances, two of which actually have camera footage that can back them up. I also have to acknowledge what's around me. This is my place back in California, so this will be my permanent background from now on. I was talking about this on live just a couple of days ago because I was so excited to do a video like this because I love doing unsolved videos. I love unsolved cases. I know everybody loves to have like closure and they like a solved case when they talk about true crime. I really favor unsolved because I don't need all of the answers. I like to have it to, you know, be a little bit of a guessing game and I like to pitch theories and I love to hear your theories in the comments below. So it just makes the conversational aspect of these stories and these videos a lot more fun. Which also leads me to our next order of business. If you could give a like, a comment, and you could subscribe below, that is really, really gonna help Creep Time out, you guys. You have been so phenomenal with your support so far and you've really helped creep time to grow and grow and I couldn't be more grateful for you and I could not be more excited to keep making content like this so if you want to support the content if you want to support creating the content please 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 do those things and that will really help creep time take off okay I'm not gonna draw the video out any longer we are gonna jump right into all three of these disappearances with the first being Eric Lewis it's only a kick a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So 57-year-old Eric Lewis was an experienced mountain climber, and he had traveled all over the world, conquering different summits, and it's believed that this particular mountain, Mount Rainier, was something that he had done close to 10 times. Which is why it's so startling to know that a mountain that he was reportedly very familiar with was also his last known whereabouts. I also want to preface that this is not your standard sort of story of someone disappearing in the woods or on a mountaintop. This is a circumstance that I find to be much stranger. To give you some additional context, so we know that Eric is a very experienced mountaineer, and he is doing this particular summit, which is on Mount Rainier, with two other climbers, which amongst the group, he is by far the most experienced and qualified, so much so that they are even turning to him for guidance on this particular mountain. So to paint this picture, this is a harnessed climb, meaning that there is a rope that is attaching all three of them, and Eric has placed himself in the rear of this group, and his two other climbing companions, Don Storm and Trevor Lane, are moving ahead of him. By the time they're pretty deep into the summit, the weather conditions have become extremely poor and the visibility is low, so this is when the rope system kind of comes into play to their advantage. The way the system works is that the first person who is leading the pack will get to a new location, stop, and then pull the rope to pull in the next person, and then they stop and they will pull in the rope for the next person, with the last person being Eric. So when the second person in that line goes to pull the rope for Eric, it's initially taut and then unexpectedly, it goes completely slack, and they pull the rope in. So when they pull the rope in, they're initially pretty shocked because the rope had been cut clean and was also knotted, which would indicate that Eric had released himself from the rope for an unknown reason. This kind of ominous and eerie feeling sets in because these climbers had just seen Eric 
You know, although they were climbing ahead of him, they were periodically checking behind them, and they had just caught glimpses of him climbing right there, even though the visibility was low. And then he was just suddenly gone. So their initial thinking is that maybe he might have fallen, so what they originally do is descend a little bit back to where they were, so they can kind of scour the area, but they don't find anything. So then they start to think, well, if the rope was cut clean and it was knotted, maybe he released himself and he surpassed us on the summit. So what they decide to do is ascend a little bit, but they don't find him there either. This is when things are starting to shape up that something is very wrong here. So they then immediately descend and they are quickly alerting rangers and a search team is assembled to go up because they know that he doesn't have any additional supplies with him like a tent or sleeping bags or food that would indicate that he had any plans to stay up there or could survive up there. That initial search team makes their way all the way up the mountain, and they don't find any trace of him. So this would give way to an even larger search effort by July 2nd, and that involves aerial efforts that are scouring this mountain. They are looking everywhere they can over the course of three days, and they turn up virtually nothing, that is until day three, when they finally spot his backpack. They retrieve the backpack, and inside they find additional water, they find his snow shovel, and other supplies, but there is no evidence of Eric's body. And this is day three, so at this point it's assumed that he probably did not survive. And if that was the case, where was he? They scoured every inch they could of that mountain, and there have been countless expeditions that have gone up there since, and to this day no one has ever found those remains. Investigators struggled quite a bit with how they could logically piece this together, that they could turn up a backpack, but no additional evidence of Eric's whereabouts, and why he decided to separate himself from that rope during the summit. We may never actually know. The only witness testimony that we can adhere to is that of his two companion climbers, who, for the most part, said they saw him one second, and then he was gone the next, making some of his final moments just a chilling mystery. Next is Lars Matank. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Lars was a 28-year-old German man who was on a vacation with four of his friends in Bulgaria, and they were staying at a resort known as the Golden Sands. There was virtually no upset to what this trip was. It wasn't like, you know, Lars was untraveled, it wasn't like it was a sinister area, everything was seemingly pretty normal, which is kind of the diametric opposite of what was to happen and just how hopelessly mysterious this case would become. So while they're on this trip, it's all pretty normal. I mean, they're just going out for drinks, they're bar hopping, they're going to football games, and everything is pretty relaxed for the most part. That is until Lars ends up getting entangled in an altercation with several unknown men over an opposing football team. Things end up getting physical, and Lars ends up taking a punch which ruptures his eardrum, and he ends up in the hospital where he is prescribed the antibiotic. Cefiroxime 500 is a prescription antibiotic which was given to him 
to prevent infection, but it has largely been thought that this could have been the catalyst to an array of erratic behavior. So they end up leaving the hospital and they return to the resort and they have a conversation about what they're gonna do because they are supposed to fly back the next day, but Lars has been advised that he should not fly because of the eardrum injury. So what he advises is that his friends just go ahead without him, fly back home. He is going to switch over to a cheaper hotel near the airport and he is just going to recover for a couple of days. But this is when everything starts to go a little off. His friends do what he says, and they end up leaving without him, so Lars is now completely alone in a new hotel room in an unfamiliar area, and he has this pretty significant injury to his eardrum. And then suddenly, his behavior becomes kind of strange. In the new hotel, he actually ends up calling his mother later that night in a panicked whisper, and he's claiming that there are men that are following him and are after him, and he begs her to freeze his credit cards. He then texts her later that night asking her about his prescription and asking her what it is, and things are just kind of building and building, and th this tension is becoming pretty severe for his family's side because they're sensing that something is wrong here. Reportedly, he is then caught on camera acting erratically throughout the hotel lobby. He is pacing back and forth, he is dipping in and out of elevators, and then leaves the building in the middle of the night for over an hour before he returns and holds himself up in his room. This then leads to another panicked call to his mother where he claims that the men who are following him are getting close. She's now becoming intensely panicked because she knows that something is wrong, so she just needs him to be home so he can see a physician. So she instructs him to get his luggage, get a cab, and get to the airport. And at this point, Lars does so. He follows her instructions, he arrives to the airport with luggage in hand. So those at the airport who did see him or even interacted with him, some of the final witnesses leading up to his disappearance noted that his behavior was relatively normal, but at times he seemed extremely nervous or even paranoid. But this would be when we get the most chilling piece of evidence to this case, the final footage of Lars. While in that airport, for an unknown reason, Lars unexpectedly stands up and shouts, I don't want to die here, and then sprints out of the airport terminal into the parking lot, climbs and hops a barbed wire fence, and runs into the woods. This would mark the last time that Lars has ever been seen on camera. Despite international search efforts and an immediate search effort using search canines of that area when Lars went missing, he has never been found. And no one has ever legitimately reported any sightings of him since his disappearance in 2014. Next is Kaylin Louder. Kaylin was a 30-year-old social worker who was living out in Utah at the time of her disappearance. She was described as a passionate person and a person who loved to help other people, and, you know, so many aspects of her life seemed relatively ordinary. That is, until everything sort of changed for her. So it was around 2013 or 2014 when Kaylin is let go from her job, and from that moment on, she finds it really difficult to find steady work. She's just having a very tough time uh, with her stability in her life and getting back up on her feet. Her career path feels pretty aimless and she gets into a really bad headspace, which I think is understandable for anybody. But this is all important context because it's leading up to this sort of peak of a two-day window where everything goes down and there's a series of strange phone calls that really gives us the clearest view into just where Kaylin's mind might have been leading up to her disappearance. 
The first emergency call that we have is Caitlin calling 911 to talk about a dispute that's taking place in the clubhouse of her condominium, and we actually have a record of this, and that's kind of our first indication where we're getting a sense that something might be kind of off here. Were weapons involved or mentioned? Yes, what kind of weapons? So naturally following that call, the officers are dispatched to the condominium to which they stumble upon this get-together, which is a wedding reception in the clubhouse. And they're extremely confused because there's no evidence that there was any fight, there was any dispute, and no one really knows what she's talking about. So why did Kaylin make that call? And because there's nothing wrong, the officers do end up leaving, but not even an hour later, she calls back to 911, and this is a totally different call, where she's not really coherent, she's kind of mumbling, and she's not making a lot of sense over the phone. She's vaguely saying certain things are around her, but then she's also getting confused, and she can't remember her own address. To me, this is an immediate red flag, because I don't know why an operator would hear her say things like this on a phone and would not send emergency medical services, but regardless, they do not, and she does not call back, that is, until the following morning, and she calls in a panic. When she calls, she's claiming that there is an intruder in her house and that she needs help, but this call was recorded as well, and when you listen to the background and you listen to how this conversation moves, it's even stranger. Can you talk freely with me? Yeah. Okay, where exactly are you? I'm in the back bedroom. Can where did the suspect door? enter the building? Um, there's only one door. Get out of my is there, house! Is there anyone else in the building who belongs there? Yes, there's six apartments. Okay, is there anybody else in your apartment that should be there? I believe she is here. I have a roommate. Come in. Don't do that, Carol. The door's still locked. It's not impossible. Okay, they must have a key or something. Because when I I took the dog out, I heard people talking. Um, and there was people last night, like, sitting outside the window. And so they, like, were scoping us out or something. Why is the door still locked? Well, <laughs> I can't explain that, but I heard like two people talking. So what's immediately odd about the call is that in the background, you can hear her talking to her roommate pretty clearly, and she's explaining to her that there is no one there. At this point, Kaylin is experiencing severe paranoia and most likely hallucinations, and still no emergency medical services are deployed. So if we cut a little bit, we kind of fast forward that same day to when Kaylin is on the phone with her mother and she's kind of giving a play-by-play -play of the calls, and she mentions that she feels embarrassed by them. But what's odd to me about how the mother noted this exchange is that she sounded very normal on the phone. There was nothing that was, you know, very pressing or, or kind of alarming about her behavior or the way she was able to carry a conversation at all. According to her mother, she sounded clear, she sounded level-headed, and there was no cause for concern, and she just notes that she's going to go about her day. This all leads us to a climax when we end up getting CCTV footage that's placed from outside of the condo that captures Kaylin later that day 
in the parking lot in a very strange context. She's seen standing outside in the parking lot, but she's barefoot and she's in a tank top even though it's raining outside. And from what neighbors had reported witnessing, she was kind of manically crying, but also talking to people who weren't there. But the most unusual aspect of this footage is that in the latter half, when she re-enters the frame, we see her frantically sprinting out of that parking lot. And this was the last time she has ever been caught on camera. She ends up leaving her phone, her wallet, and her dog outside in that parking lot in the rain, and she runs out of there barefoot. And there were no witnesses who remembered seeing her after that. By December 2014, this is a full two months following her disappearance and significant search efforts, city officials end up going to the Jordan River and they are inspecting under a bridge for drainage piping. While under that bridge, officials stumble upon the body of Kaylin and describe that she was hidden within vegetation. She was found five miles from her last known whereabouts and there were no immediate signs of injury to the body and there was no additional evidence that could explain what might have happened to her after we saw her leave that frame from the condo CCTV footage. But a later examination of Kaylin's body would actually add even more complexity to the story. Not only was she completely free of any substances in her body that could explain some of that erratic behavior, but examiners couldn't determine what exactly happened to her. She had no signs of injury or trauma, and there was virtually no evidence in her body that could give an account of what caused those final moments. The unsettling mystery of Kaylin, I think, is really rooted in that eerie disappearance itself. I mean, we really don't know what happened to her after she ran out of frame, and it's surprising to me that there are virtually no witnesses who remembered seeing her. Whatever immediately happened following that final footage holds the answer to the end of Kaylin's life. Alright, that is all for now. Make sure that you leave me a comment below and let me know which of these three disappearances is the most chilling for you. And of course, as always, if you want to leave me suggestions for different stories, cases, or pictures to cover, I am happy to look through and I am happy to cover. And I will catch you on another Creep Time.